It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. This is Backroom Politics. And good afternoon on Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio, uh, with our team of panelists all over this great nation of ours. Starting in New York City, she is the former attorney for the Hillary Clinton 2016 presidential campaign in the great state of Ohio. She is currently a attorney in New York City. She is the one we know, Sharmila Achari. Sharmila, how are you, ma'am? Great, Justin. Just pre-ordered my copy of Bob Woodward's new book. Oh, oh we, we've got some gossip on that one, too. Uh, joining us from Washington, D.C., he is longtime Democratic political operative and former Biden political just boss, he is the man we know as Diane Lipner, Esquire. Daniel, how are you? I am good. I am uh, apparently going to be getting a Trump 2020 bumper sticker for my car, since that will keep me from getting speeding tickets. <laughs> Joining I mean, me. And the president. Well, that's true. Joining me from the great Commonwealth of Virginia, usually in Florida, he is the one star retired from your United States Navy is the man we know as Admiral Ken Karen. Admiral Ken, how are you? Hello, Just- Hello Justin, and uh, like Sharmila, I have ordered the electronic version of Fear. Oh, a lot of people already ordering that. And, of course, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents, longtime Senate staffer and Washington insider. He is the man we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Hey, we've got a lot to talk about. I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell, and we're going to kick this off with the current developing news coming out of Washington, D.C. In case you have not seen any of the 24-hour news coverage, any of the radio news coverage, or any of the C-SPAN tweets, uh, there is a Judiciary Committee hearing going on, and it is just the opening statements uh, in the hearing for Judge uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who is the Trump administration's selection to replace retiring Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court. Well, unlike anything else that happens in Washington, D.C., it has turned into a flaming circus of fire. Democrats have moved to uh, moved. They have moved to actually postpone this hearing. Uh, they've moved to adjourn many times, led by Connecticut Democrat Richard Blumenthal. But everybody that's come on has come out swinging against Justice Kavanaugh on the Dem side. The Republicans obviously are defending Judge Kavanaugh. They are supporting the fact that he does have a solid judicial record of 
not legislating from the bench, but taking into consideration the Constitution and the law. Needless to say, there is a, this is now a blood sport inside the Judiciary Committee hearing right now. As we look at our friends over at MSNBC, we can see uh, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham now in the middle of his opening statements. For the most part, the chairman, Chuck Grassley, has let this thing roll. No time limits per se. Uh, right now, he's using the benchmark of uh, Senator Blumenthal's over 15 minutes of rhetoric to start the opening. In a quote that he said, he's letting the committee run him and not him running the committee. That being said, lots to talk about on this alone. Um, let, let me start with you, Sharmila, on this one. Sharmila, this to me looks like a kabuki dance. I mean, this is political theater for the most part. But let's be clear, why why are the Democrats going after uh, Kavanaugh in a way that we really didn't see them go after Gorsuch so much? Well, I tend to agree with you, Justin. Um, I think that there's a twofold reason for this. Number one, this is somewhat delayed retribution for what happened to Merrick Garland. I think, you know, with respect to Justice Gorsuch, um, I think the Democrats always suspected that Trump would get at least one nominee. And so, and at that point, I think their political, uh, sort of the, the political fire of the base was more geared towards uh, things like, you know, the Muslim ban and the potential repeal of the ACA. So there were other, you know, targets for kind of liberal activist base fire. And so the um, the kind of the need for, I think, the Democrats, especially some Democrats in these very vulnerable positions, such as Senator Manchin, Senator Donnelly, Senator Heitkamp, there was less of a need for them to take a strong stand against uh, against the president's nominee. Also remember, the president was slightly more popular back then than he was now. Now, this has become, uh, now, you know, Justice Kavanaugh has become the hot button issue. So, you know, the base is fired up about it, or more fired up than they were about uh, Justice Gorsuch. I think the fact that this justice is replacing uh, Justice Kennedy, who was the swing vote on the court, is in the minds of a lot of people. The, you know, the liberal media... I hate using that term, but, you know, the more leftist elements of the media have certainly spun this to Democratic activists as a, you know, battle for the soul of Roe v. Wade. And so I think that Democratic senators are now feeling that pressure much more from their constituents, and so they're responding. You know, I I tend to agree with you. I think this is a, you know, Alamo-type stand for the Democrats. Ultimately, they don't have the numbers to, uh, to prevent Judge Kavanaugh from being confirmed, but I do think that... You know, the the increased agita of the base is causing the more unified front of Democrats right now in their opposition to Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, Alan Moore, I mean, to me, Gorsuch would have been the better play if there was going to be some sort of retaliation by the Democrats for the lack of hearing of Obama's last pick. Why, why, why Kavanaugh? Why now? So I, I think that Sharmila got it right when, when she in, in in two ways. One, there was a lot else going on 
uh, when Gorsuch came. That that was right out of the box, and there were a lot of things that that the Democrats were afraid of, and things that they were uh, they, they they didn't know all the ways they were going to be angry at the president back then. Um, but but the second point she made, I think, is 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 bigger, and that is that when Gorsuch came, in effect, he was replacing Scalia. He wasn't arguably changing the balance uh, of the court um, with Kennedy being this swing vote. This time, clearly, there's a shift in the balance, and that is freaking out the Democrats. Now, having said that, the Democrats were very divided among themselves internally on, on how to proceed here. Um, and and how much to disrupt. And there were people saying, don't go. Don't go to the hearing. Um, and uh, and they decided apparently via a, a conference call over the weekend on a plan to just be disruptive. Um, that was what was uh, charged in the meeting. It wasn't really denied. Um, they, the, the excuse for the early disruption was, we just got 40,000 more pages of documents uh, last night, and how could we possibly have a hearing uh, today and not have a chance to read them? Well, that ignored the fact that today was just opening statements. There were no questions. There are no questions scheduled for today. Having said that, um, it, it was not a bad argument to make, even though – it was, it wasn't part of the plan to be disruptive. The, that part, the, the the plan hatched over the weekend, reportedly apparently, was let's just disrupt the heck out of this and and try to delay, try to postpone, um, and then suddenly they were handed this new additional excuse to their general outrage. Make no mistake about this, and then I'll finish. This is about the twenty. 18 upcoming congressional elections. Um, there's a chance, obviously, always that something could occur in the course of the hearing um, that 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 Judge Kavanaugh could make a mistake, that something might emerge that would be particularly troublesome and difficult and embarrassing. Seems highly unlikely, but that that's possible. Um, therefore, the Republicans presumably have the votes, and when the time comes to vote it's entirely possible they'll pick up a couple of of democrat votes um but but uh so this is about maintaining credibility about arguing in 2018 this will happen again people if we don't elect a democratic congress uh we need a democratic senate we need to stop this president we need to start investigating all the crazy things he has said and done right and, right and so right. so that's the that's the 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 the, the behind the scenes story. Um, everything else is uh, is show uh, in in my in my opinion, and and some pretty harsh things being said uh, about the current court about the the, the process. Uh, Admiral Ken, looking at this. Kavanaugh is being blamed for just about everything wrong with uh, nominees to the Supreme Court. Uh, they've accused him of legislating from the bench. They, they've pretty much come out and said everything that he is everything but a Trump puppet that would go to the bench and just spew Trump-like ideas. Um, his record really doesn't show that, though, does it? No, it doesn't. Um but, you know, I, I think Alan hit the nail on the head that 
Um, the the Democrats don't have the vote to stop vote to stop this guy. Um, he was a Republican um, appointee. Uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, as you alluded in scheduled remarks, just made made his comment, and, and I have to agree with him that you know he came out of uh, a, a spate of Republican appointed judges, and he says, okay, if if a Democrat was president, where are you guys going to get your nominee from? I mean, come on, let's be serious here. Uh, I think uh, of the testimonies that I've heard so far, Ben Sass uh, of Nebraska, I think was just absolutely spot on. And he made the point that the only reason that this has become as much of a political um, uh, kabuki dance, uh, as you call it, as it has become, is because Congress isn't doing their job. That they're the supposed to be the ones that, that, that the debate uh, and come up with policy, and, and rather than do it, they're tossing it over to the government bureaucrats, uh, which are creating legal cases that the Supreme Court are going to have to solve. Um, and I, I think I think those, those those two comments were right on target. Sharmila, though, does it seem odd that? Do I get to chime the in here? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, please. By all means, Dan Lipner. So a, a couple of things. One, I agree with all of the comments, but it's also worth noting that Kavanaugh also has a, a, a piece of writing out there uh, specifically on point of whether or not they, the president should be subject to investigation. And that writing makes him a ripe target, especially considering what else has gone on with the Mueller investigation. So the fact that, yes, it is the 2018 election cycle and everyone is focused on this, that one fact makes it look very much like the president may have selected this potential justice because this potential justice would have his back should something reach him relating to the president's legal issues. But but here's the question I have, though. Um, it's a matter of do uh, – how do I say this? We're talking about past writings of a jurist, and these were not opinions given from the bench. This This was opinions given whether he was part of the Ken Starr, uh, whether he was part of Ken Starr's team in the uh, special counsel uh, looking into uh, President Bill Clinton's administration or as a uh, member of the White House counsel team. This is the, 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 the writings he did as a lawyer versus the writings he's done as a judge. Sharma, should they be held to equal standard or should his record as a as a justice take supreme no of course his writings as a as a lawyer should be taken into considerations because they form part of the but totality of his of his points but should they hold the same weight? It's not a question of holding the same weight. The question is, you know, what do you want to focus on? I would agree with you that if, you know, these are writings from 40 years ago when he was a first year law student, that yeah, perhaps they don't, you know, deserve quite a lot of relevance but they were they were paper, they were papers published you know in the midst of his legal career when he you know had been working for a long time he was working in a political position and right the fact that he didn't 
rule on this issue from the bench just means that this issue never crossed his crossed his desk during that time. It doesn't, you know, it still certainly is very relevant for whether, like, for, you know, when he becomes a Supreme Court justice, if the issue crosses his desk, what will he do about it, right? It's, it is part of the, you know, totality of his writings on his viewpoint on that issue. So it's certainly relevant. I think that, yes, obviously, if he had produced some controversial opinions or, you know, something of the like while he was a judge, he would obviously be questioned on those. But the fact that this writing preceded his tenure as a judge doesn't make it irrelevant and makes it perfectly appropriate and applicable for questioning. Alan Moore, you agree? Totally. Absolutely. It, 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 and, and I, but I think the key is that anything he's ever said or written um, or that other people have, have attributed to him is fair game for committee consideration for questioning and then see what he says and see how they feel. Having said that, it, 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 it is, uh, though everything is fair game, the stuff that's most relevant to, in my judgment, is the 12 years, the 300 plus decision, uh, 12 years on the bench, the 300 plus um, decisions um, uh, or, or, or written comments that he has made on particular cases. That it's up to the committee to weigh the 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 importance and weigh the answers. Everything is on the table. Everything's fair game. But most of uh, most observers of this would say the best measure of what a person would likely do as a judge or justice is an offshoot of what they have decided while sitting as a judge. Dan Lipner, to me, it seems like the Democrats could probably score a lot of points here if they chose to look at this primarily through a legal standpoint versus making it the open blood sport that the Democrats seem to be making it now, I would think that with the target being with the target being independent voters and swing voters, why not why not make it about the record and not about the rhetoric? Because people don't necessarily understand the record versus the rhetoric. And this is not to disparage normal people who aren't lawyers. It's just a different point of view in how you actually look at the law. And the question is how you go about explaining the issues to lay people uh, when the law is at play. But also worth noting, and I've asked Alan this question because it's something that I heard and I'm not certain it's true. The, it was suggested that now with the absence of Senator McCain, if every Democrat refused to show up to the floor of the Senate, they could actually deny a quorum and therefore deny a vote on Judge, uh, on Judge Kavanaugh. Is that correct? Well, Alan? So, so, first of all, um, I, I, don't think there, I don't think there's a quorum issue, but I could be wrong on that. Having said that, it's reported today that, that the governor of Arizona is naming former Senator John Kyle to take the McCain uh, seat. Uh, Kyle has apparently agreed to serve at least through the end of this year, and we'll see beyond that. So it becomes 
it, it becomes a moot point. The problem, though, if you if you try to deny a quorum, then you have what's called a live quorum, and the sergeant at arms is instructed to go out and around and, and pick up uh, absent senators. Um, a, a couple of times in the past, uh, that that has been tried, and and the the, the people on the uh, who who are trying to not show up to deny a quorum end up. Um, looking like they're trying it have, it have historically in those rare cases where it occurred that to my recollection have ended up looking like they're trying to not do their job and deny to deny the Senate the ability to to do the the, the public's business Sharmila, here's here's the thing about this though is all indications are that judge Kavanaugh is going to Probably be confirmed, uh, if not in the committee hearing, but more so on the floor vote, which is the big vote that needs to go in front of the uh, for the White House. Is there any way that the Democrats are going to be able to score points by turning Kavanaugh into the next uh, Judge Bork? Yes, I think they're going to be able to score points to their base. Like I pointed out earlier, you know, we're in two different times. The president is much more unpopular now than he was at the time of Justice Gorsuch's hearings than Judge Gorsuch. I think right now, you know, to your question earlier about, you know, couldn't the Democrats score more points with moderates and, you know, undecided voters if they were, you know, playing nice and judge, uh, judge Kavanaugh on his merits, I think that right now they're relying on the president to, you know, do his own job of alienating moderates and swing voters, which allows them to use this effort to shore up their base, right? Now, you know, I don't know if you saw, there was a recent poll that showed that in, um, in the midterm elections, the generic Democrat is up 14 points against the generic Republican. The Republicans are expecting a bloodbath in November, and so what scares Democrats now more is challengers to the left, so Democratic incumbents now don't want to be caught on the wrong side of this issue, whereas previously some of these vulnerable Democratic senators didn't want to be you know, caught on the wrong side of the president. Now they're getting emboldened by his low poll numbers, and they realize that their bigger challenge is you know, a progressive activist or a progressive candidate who's more to the left of them, who will be even more anti-Trump and kind of – you know promise the voters that they will be even more opposed to the president's policies. And so that's why I think you see the Democrats now being much more cohesive in their opposition to Judge Kavanaugh. Dan Littner, are we we over-politicizing the bench and forcing these judges uh, to almost compromise themselves in some sort of way when going in front of these, these hearings? Well, considering I know Alan is going to push back on me almost instantaneously, but uh, the, the, the outright theft of the seat uh, from Merrick Garland uh, by not uh, allowing him a hearing when uh, President Obama nominated him, uh, yeah, that, I don't consider it over-politicized at all considering what Mitch McConnell did with the last Democratic nominee. All bets are off. Alan Moore, do you concur? Well, I, 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 I don't disagree with with what he's saying. The anger uh, over 
over Garland uh, lives on. Uh, you you started out though, uh, Justin, with a really interesting question. So, why was Gorsuch able to get through relatively easily, and now the Garland stuff is is rising up in a bigger way with Kavanaugh? And we we talked about that. Um, it it's not that that the Garland issues weren't present a year ago. They they're still alive. Um, we can have a whole separate discussion about Garland. We've talked about it to 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 uh, to a great degree um, ever since uh, his nomination came forward, and and uh, and McConnell made the decision with <laughs> with the near unanimous support of his uh, of his caucus. Uh, it might be noted uh, to simply acknowledge the reality that he was not going to be confirmed. And therefore, uh, it made no sense to uh, to to spend time and 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 elevate expectations on the side of the others and so on. One can argue whether that was a good thing or not. It outraged the Democrats. It outraged many people across the country. It's still talked about by by commentators, writers, politicians, and so on. So. My gosh, uh, anybody who didn't think that we were going to hear more about uh, about Garland in this nomination was was naive. But now it's it's bigger. But it, I, it, I let agree me, hold with, on, with, Alan, with Alan, let me, comments. Yeah. Alan, yeah. let me jump in real quick. Is this a matter that the Democrats are literally chumming the water using Merrick Garland as the battle cry for larger political capital? No, I see Garland. Garland is, although you know, it's a fair subject to talk about. It's a source of anger. This is not about about Garland or McConnell. This is about Donald Trump. This is about the 2018 elections. They will invoke Garland. They will invoke documents. They will invoke um, uh, everything they can dig up uh, on Kavanaugh. Um, uh, they will talk about process. You you haven't heard from the Democrats today. I was watching the beginning. No one was really getting into anything at all about uh, uh, almost nothing at all about him and and his, whether he's qualified and his decisions. This was all about um, the the horrific process, the missing um, hundreds of thousands of documents, which is totally laughable, but we may or may not talk about that. Um, it's, it's all an effort to slow things down, to maybe uncover something, but to show the base of the Democratic Party, we did everything we could, but we're in the minority. Give us a majority, folks. Give us a majority, and we will beat the holy hell out of uh, Trump and and <laughs> that of the president and his uh, uh, his quiet um, uh, unquestioning followers in the Congress. Admiral the Ken, documents is, is something to pass by too quickly. It's the, okay, go the ahead. Misuse of executive, the misuse of executive privilege there is, is a thing. The fact that Donald Trump's White House is, is asserting executive privilege over documents dating back to the George W. Bush presidency is an absolute misuse of the privilege. So let's not dance past that too quickly, especially since we're talking about the appointment of a justice of the Supreme Court. That kind of stuff matters. Well, wait a minute. Let's, let's not, hold on, hold on. Let me, hold on. Let me jump in real quick. Dan Lipner, there's two points of view. 
two points of view on that question. That's all I'm saying. Well, you're right. And, 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 and Dan Lipner, let me go back to you since you brought it up. When you talk about the, you know, we hear about the, the misuse of executive privilege in the withholding, sort of say, of the documents that may have had uh, Judge Kavanaugh's name all over it. The question is, one could argue that anything Judge Kavanaugh did in his role as White House counsel or as part of the, as part of the office of White House counsel could be, regardless of the president, whether it's Trump, Obama, Bush, or going back to Harry Truman, could be in, in, invoked as executive privilege based on the fact that that is the work product of the lawyer for the executive office, not the individual. So I, I got to go into the weeds here a little bit. Also Don't go too deep. Background. Don't go too deep, Dan, please. So as a law clerk for then Vice President Al Gore, I actually went into the woods on the Presidential Records Act for which these records would fall under. The purpose of sequestering or keeping these any of these records hidden is and this is accurate to, to Alan's point, is to, to allow for people to, ha- to speak candidly uh, to their boss, in this case the President of the United States or other people within the administration, and to hide those records for a reasonable period of time so as to allow them to still be, once they're, once they're made public, to be ingested by the public in context. That, that was the legislative reasoning behind b- both hiding the documents or concealing the documents, but also releasing them. And the release is generally a 10-year window of time unless there is an issue of national security or some sort of classified issue. Not executive privilege, but actual security issues with those documents. The fact that Kavanaugh has been a political creature and not just a legal creature, meaning he's worked within the executive branch as, as a lawyer for the executive branch in Republican administrations, withholding those documents when they're well outside of the 10-year window for which the Presidential Records Act would, would hide them is not what the intent of the law is. And the Trump administration asserting executive privilege when now President Trump was not even whispering the idea of wanting to run for president is absurd. And that, that kind of reasoning matters. In any other context, I, I might take it to Alan's point that, yeah, it could be a different argument. But in this case, we are literally arguing about the records for a man who is going to be a justice on the Supreme Court. I don't think it would be out of line for him to be asked outright whether or not the Presidential Records Act was being used accurately to withhold his documents. But, Alan Moore, let's call yeah. this what this is. When we talk about the resistance of the Democrats on the committee, um, and most vocal being right now Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut, are, are they – I mean, they're complaining about 10,000 documents that were dumped on them – uh, last minute this morning at about 5 a.m. In reality, they don't read their own bills, let alone 10,000 documents. And they've made this a war cry as if something is going to change their mind 
in these 10,000 documents. Regardless of the party, is that a reason to hold up, withhold, or move forward? Or is it, in fact, just another smoke and mirrors campaign to hold up the process? Well, it's it's a, it's 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 a third thing. Let, let's get the facts right. Yesterday afternoon, there was a there was a dump of just over five thousand documents and about four, which was about forty thousand pages. You'll hear various people, including in the committee, say forty thousand documents. Not true. Forty thousand pages, about five thousand documents. No small volume. Understand, but let's at least talk about what we're talking about. Let's also acknowledge, as you sort of suggest, that that I think virtually every member of the the Democratic side of the Judiciary Committee has already announced his and her opposition to this candidate. So to suggest that they need more information to make up their mind is laughable and ludicrous. Having said that, maybe there's a document, maybe there's something there that is so outrageous, so so off the wall, so out of the mainstream that it might persuade a Republican to come over. There's no, you know, it, it, it's important to look at everything. Now, to to having said that, to Dan, to Dan's point, there's there's a couple of different time periods here and a couple of different kinds of documents. Little d- differentiation is being made in the in the in the public sphere, and we hear about tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and a million pages and all this kind of stuff. The we have everything. We have all of his decisions from the last 12 years. That's the most important stuff that's out there. It's not the only thing that's important. It's just the most important. Between the period of 2001 and 2003, he was in the White House Counsel's office, in, sometimes involved in decisions regarding judicial appointees and nominees and other legal issues. As far as I know, all of that, all of the material from his job as a White House lawyer, forget, you know, they're not, a, they're not talking about lawyer-client privilege. He's a lawyer to the presidency, not to an individual. As far as I know, all that information has been made available, but some of it, about a third of it, quite a bit of it, has been made available on an unusual basis that only senators can look at it. Um, some of it may be made public later. Some of these senators may simply choose to <laughs> ignore rules and, and, and make it public, and some people are encouraging them to do that. The fact of the matter is, while the, his role as a lawyer, as far as I know, it's all been made public. The big issue, and then all of the stuff from before that, when he worked uh, for, for, for Ken Starr in the investigation of Clinton, um, when he was involved, as, as far as I know, in the in the in the in the Bush v. Gore Florida issue, where where Dan, Dan and Brett maybe crossed paths along the way, as far as I know, that that stuff's uh, available. The big missing piece, and the place where the controversy is, is when he was in his role from 2003, I think, to 2005, when his job was no longer in the counsel's office, but he was in the job of that's called staff. Secretary, the staff secretary for people who don't know is the person who handles all of the incoming paper that has to go to the president, goes to the president, decisions are made, comes back out, and the staff secretary has to make sure that that all after action requirements uh, are are held out. The staff secretary plays a very important, very senior role, 
but not as a decision maker or even on a regular basis as a recommender. What he's doing is he's gathering information from elsewhere in the White House, from the National Security Council, Domestic Policy Council, cabinet members, gathering the input and recommendations of other senior staff, consolidating it, getting it to the president, getting decision and bringing it out. So it's not just a, a postman or a traffic cop on the one hand, but it's not a policy job. And, and, and it's, and it's massive volumes of paper. There's something like, I'm told like a million documents. So that when you hear the big number or you hear say they've only provided 5% or 4%, it's because that stuff uh, against which I believe, and I'm no expert on on the the the, the Federal uh, uh, Records Act that, that that Dan was talking about. I certainly defer to to his knowledge there, but that's where the executive privilege is being invoked, and the question raised as to what, how relevant that stuff really is. It doesn't reflect his opinions, his views. He is he's on his name is on it because he's transmitting right. stuff. Right. But okay. but that's the that's the big bulk of so-called missing material where I guess the, 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 the Democrats are hoping there's a smoking gun in there, but they're also trying to use it as an excuse and talk about cover-up, cover-up, cover-up. You heard that, that line all, all this morning. What are they hiding? What are they hiding? Right. What are they hiding? But there's no way you could look at a million documents in any uh, close period of time. Almost all I mean, of Char- it. And I mean, Charma, let's, not let's be honest. Well, Charma, let's be honest is the Democrats have had enough time to do internal vetting, if you will, through their staff, uh, committee minority staff or through their own uh, office staff that handle judiciary issues to really find out if there's something there regarding any of his rulings, any of his decisions. Uh, you really... I mean, do you really believe that going back to his days with Ken Starr's office are going to bring to light anything dramatically new that could sway Republicans the way they they need to be swayed to knock them off point? I mean, it could. That's the whole point of requesting these documents. And the fact that the documents have been withheld just kind of increases the um, – the hunger for them and increases the ability of Democrats to say, well, if there's nothing there, why are you hiding them? Why aren't you producing them? So, I mean, ultimately, I think we can all recognize that this is a dog and pony show. So, you know, if the documents are produced, they'll still, you know, the Democrats, I'm sure, will still in mass in as a block vote against Judge Kavanaugh or, you know, still attempt to delay the proceedings. But it gives it does give them a little more feel for the fire. Uh, well, uh, as we're talking right now, we're seeing Judge Kavanaugh uh, re-sworn in uh, as they continue opening statements at his confirmation hearing. We're going to take this opportunity, go around the horn real quick. Uh, starting with Admiral Ken, does Judge Kavanaugh get his seat on the Supreme Court? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think... Uh, even when the Democrats said it best, it's not about uh, the fact of whether he's qualified or not. Um, it's, you know, uh, that's, that seems to not be the argument. Um, the real argument, I think, is whether uh, he can put down what they perceive as his bias and do the job the right way. So, yeah, I think so. 
Charmala Chari. Yes, the numbers do not favor the Democrats. Dan Lipner. Barring some sort of bomb that goes off, unfortunately, yeah, he's the, the next Supreme Court justice. Alan Moore. I agree with Dan. I know you love hearing that. <laughs> and oddly enough, I just want to point this out. If I'm not mistaken, uh, looking at the picture coming from our friends at MSNBC, is that former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice sitting right it behind? Is indeed. It, it, it is, is indeed. It is indeed. It is Condoleezza. And, oh, uh, also Don, and, and also Don McGahn seated back there, too. I didn't, I didn't see Don. Interesting. Okay. That being said, um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the funeral services that were held for Senator McCain and the possible outlying effects of not only Senator McCain's legacy, but those who spoke and the actions of some over the weekend. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Back Home Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We will be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
And we're back with the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Alan Moore, Sharmila Achari, Dan Lipner, and Admiral Ken Carradine. I'm your host, moderator, Justin Russell. Hey, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what happened over the weekend, in case you missed it. A very moving and dramatic memorial service was held at the National Cathedral up in northwest Washington, D.C., a beautiful venue that held a absolutely beautiful service to celebrate the life of one of Americans' true statesmen and true heroes of our time, and a truly great senator on top of that. It was noticeable who spoke. It was noticeable who did not speak. It was noticeable who, in fact, was not in attendance. Let's get into it real quickly. Admiral Ken, let me start with you. Um, Obviously, this was prior to the actual funeral service and internment uh, of Senator McCain at the Naval Academy. But looking at the memorial service at the National Cathedral, what stood out to you from that service uh, about not only the character of Senator McCain, but who he was in his personal life as well. Um, I think that entire service um, was was embodied by the values that McCain tried to espouse um, in, in his time uh, of service. Um, he had a Republican and a Democrat um, uh, uh, doing doing duty around that that uh, that event, almost hand in hand. Uh, when when you when you saw uh, Dick Cheney sitting next to Hillary Clinton, um, when you saw the, the Obamas sitting next to the Bushes, um, you know, and uh, and the Bushes sitting next to the Clintons. I mean, it just kind of spoke volumes about the fact that it's okay to disagree. Just like we do on the show, but it's not okay. It's never okay to be disagreeable, and that's. I think that's probably the one message that uh, that uh, that I think came came across. And, and and I've had a couple of comments or conversations with some folks on the back end that were trying to say, yeah, uh, John McCain was just trying to stick it to, to President Trump. And I said, if that's what you got from that, then you weren't paying attention. You weren't paying attention. Uh, Alan, Alan Moore is, is, or I'm sorry, Sharma, Charlie, Sharma, is there some truth in the critics that say that the service was in fact too politicalized? I mean, take it up with Senator McCain. Apparently, he directed and planned a large majority of it, including you know approving the eulogy that his daughter gave so lovingly. So, if it was too political, it's kind of too late now. Um, you know, I think that you know, Senator McCain obviously made no bones of his opposition to the way President Trump conducts himself and sort of the, the rhetoric he uses and the way he has weaponized a lot of, you know, people's fears against, you know, various communities, whether they be immigrants or Muslim Americans or whoever else. And so I think that it was somewhat fitting that he kind of go out with the last word in in terms of, you know, one final criticism 
of the way the, of the direction our politics is heading and a call, you know, a, both, you know, a, a literal and a visual call to Americans to say, look, we need to come together now. If all of these people who are so different in their, you know, political ideologies and their approaches and their, you know, overall ways of being can come together and, you know, mingle together and celebrate together and mourn together, then the rest of us as a country should be able to do that as well. Uh, Dan Lipner, you agree? Dan Lipner. Oh, it helps if I don't mute myself when, I, when I'm speaking. Uh, the answer is, yeah, I do agree. And, but it's a lot more than that. Like Senator McCain, what he choreographed was less about himself and entirely about how he lived his life and what he expected from the rest of us who, who engage in politics at the micro or macro level. A call to service and a call to country – above our petty other squabbles. And to his credit, he choreographed that, in my mind, perfectly. And hopefully more people heed the lesson that he tried to teach us down to his last day. Alan Moore, though, a lot of people looked at that service as a whole and said, and of course, a lot of the people are, are from the base, but said it was more of a message of, you know, a more of a myth finger to Trump than it was a, a message of bipartisanship and civility in politics. Do you agree with that? Well, in my view, and I watched it all, it was two things. It wasn't just one. Because it was two things, a tribute to the, man, to, the, to, to the man, John McCain, and all he worked for and stood for, um, which was the traditional memorial service focus where you celebrate a particular life, that was the overwhelming part of what this was all about. But there was also a second piece, which was an undercurrent, not accidental, um, uh, but a, a true undercurrent of of being creating the opposite image of what this president is, how he acts, and how he sees the country. There was no getting around it. Meghan McCain, um, his, his daughter, went directly at it, right out of the box, triggering something highly unusual in a memorial service, which was applause and then that prompted applause after other speakers but both presidents who spoke uh, former presidents bush and obama in much more subtle ways um, described the contrast between the america that john mccain sacrificed for fought for advocated for um, uh, and and the 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 America of the moment of our of our current president. So there is no getting around the fact that there was an undercurrent of criticism of this current president. There would have been a lot less interest in this event, it, and it wouldn't have felt as big and as grand if it had not been for Trump 
<laughs> curiously. Um, it tr- Trump's anger and and ugliness towards John McCain elevated John McCain. So the memorializing of John McCain became even bigger. The service became even bigger. The audience became even bigger. And as and as Senator McCain came, became bigger, President Trump was diminished. Well, yeah, and if I can interject as well for one second. Yeah, go ahead, Charmla. Um, I, I think, you know, Alan's absolutely right, and I think that, you know, the, the fact that it was both a rebuke of the president and a celebration of John McCain's civility kind of have to go hand in hand, right, because John McCain was this symbol of bipartisanship and maintaining civility even when you're in opposition, and President Trump has gone so far down the pike of degrading that ideal that, you know, the two really go hand, the, you know, the appreciation of, of the McCain ideal and the rebuke of Trump really are sort of like a yin and yang. Here's, here's the question I have, though, Admiral Ken, is it, you would think that everybody knows that Trump had already elevated this up to minor deity status. Uh, the question comes up is, could the president have done himself a favor just by maybe staying in the White House, not going out for those few hours, work from the Oval Office, stay in the residence, don't tweet, but instead takes a motorcade out to western northern Virginia and goes to play at his Trump National Golf Course, tweeting while he's on the golf course, make America great again, not just once, but two or three times, is... is did, did he do himself even more damage if that's possible? Well, yeah, he did. And, 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 and if you go back and you look at what has happened or what he said and what he's done over the last almost two years, um, to expect him to do otherwise would be folly. Um, I, I, I can't imagine uh, being uh, so small of a person as, as is the president, but – uh, if I were to even try, I can't imagine what it would be like to be president of the United States um, and to realize that the person that I, for whatever bizarre reason, hold uh, in, in the highest level of disdain is getting a send-off of the likes that I would never get. Trump's never going to get that, and he, he, I think he knew that, and I think that's why it was impossible for him to sit still in the White House and to be quiet and, and, and to, to not say anything, to, to be, for lack of a better way of putting it, respectful, even presidential, beyond his capability. Dan Littner, how profound was Megan, uh, Megan McCain's eulogy at the service? I mean, I'm hesitant. It's, she was saying goodbye to her father, and she was saying goodbye to her father for all of us. I think it was not just pr- profound. I don't know if it's even the right word. It was what was needed and was what he deserved. And I think everything about the service reflected that. Alan Moore, there are some critics, particularly on the right, that say that Megan McCain's speech was inappropriate, over the top, and even uh, one would say anti-civility. Do you agree with that? You know, 
That, that's an interesting question. How civil was it for her to make such pointed comments um, at a memorial service towards a sitting president? Um, it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't the the most shining example of civility. Let's acknowledge that. Let's let's all also acknowledge that that much as we were we were glorifying and lionizing and memorializing uh, John McCain. There was a man who could be in your face, profanely uncivil um, <laughs> to people with whom he disagreed. Um, so if if John McCain is the standard against which we're measuring, then his daughter showed remarkable restraint. It it was jarring to hear it. I was very touched by was it her comments uh, her uh, her comments about uh, about what kind of a father he was and what that meant to her and her and her siblings. Um, I'm fortunate enough to uh, uh, to to. <laughs> To have children and, and stepchildren, and and I, I I loved all of that. It was extraordinarily moving. When she pivoted uh, to the other, it didn't it didn't surprise me. I mean, I'm not going to sit and be critical of a girl of a woman who who lost her father and got up there and was trying to channel him, uh, and if if you will. Um, so for me, that was not the definition of the service. Um, it was again the, the 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 first shot of which, and and the and the and the least subtle shot of which we heard several over the course of the day. But under the circumstances and under this recent history of the last year and a half, two years, what what did we expect? Um, but as I said before. The Trump McCain uh, mutual contempt and hostility elevated this event. And if no one had mentioned anything about it subtly or not, then people would say, "Wow, um, the elephant in the room was uh, was that unspoken issue." But it was spoken, um, and yet it didn't overshadow. Um, it was the secondary um, uh, theme if you will and uh and it was a remarkable remarkable event and the symbolism of having the the group of people there including Ivanka Trump and her husband including the secretary of defense and chief of staff and uh, national security advisor and director of of <laughs> of of intelligence i mean there were administration senior people who were present and and if you want to think about who's uncomfortable there the president obviously didn't listen um it's not in his nature to listen and be reflective and to learn but think about and speaking of fathers and daughters think about what ivanka trump must have been uh, going through what must have been going through her mind and she's thinking this is like a presidential memorial service too bad my dad will never have anything like this. Wow. Um, Admiral Ken, you know, one of, one of the things I, I, or one of the themes or one of the storylines that I thought kind of got played to the side a little bit that was of particular interest to me only because of the fact that I'm a veteran is if you look at 
the McCain family, particularly the sons, you have one who is a graduate of the Naval Academy, a fighter pilot, a lieutenant like his father. And you also have a sergeant, an E-5 sergeant, an enlisted member of the U.S. Army in that same Marine Corps. No, he's, he's Army. I think no, he, he, he was Army. You're, 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 you're both right. One was a Marine. The, the right. one, one was, is, yeah. was a former Marine. Yeah, but go ahead. Tell us, tell us. Right. One was a former Marine. Uh, one is, is still a sergeant in the Army. And then, of course, I want, you know, as, as Alan pointed out, he has another son who was a former Marine. Uh, is The testament, what shocked me was two enlisted, one officer, but it's a continuation of the mantra that it seems that Senator McCain put into his children of there is nothing less valiant than serving your country and doing public service. Why is it that we miss out on that storyline? And why was that not a full point? Well, I, I, I depending on, on, on what channel you were watching, um, it may have been mentioned more or less than, than another. Um, I, I think that um, when you've got a family like the McCain's and, uh, and I've got, uh, a classmate from the academy whose whose father was a three star, and, and Tom ultimately got to take the uh, the same job that his father had when uh, when he was a three star. Um, I think when when you've got families like that, it's just like any other family that's got a tradition of being in one profession or another. Lawyers beget lawyers, doctors beget doctors. It goes on and on and on. Um, and, and, you know, and, you know, I got to, got to tell you when, 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 you know, my, uh, my, my stepkid, Samantha, uh, decided to become a, uh, a Navy nurse. My other two kids wrote her a note and said, you've made our father a very happy man. He's finally got a kid in uniform. It's just the way it works. Uh, we, I want to take one last round on this one as everything that we saw. Uh, the, the speech by Obama, which was amazing. The speech by Bush, which was ex- very amazing. Uh, obviously, we talked about the speech given by Meghan McCain. All in all, as we close out this segment, just what was the big takeaway from your individual standpoints from not service, but from remembering Senator McCain? Uh, start with you, Dan Lipner. Not only can we be better, but when push comes to shove, we can, we've can. we seen what better looks like, and we should be. Sharma Achari? I'm sorry, Justin, can you repeat the question? What's your takeaway from, from the services that we saw in celebrating Senator McCain's life? I think we saw that there is still room in the political world for civility and for unity when, when a, you know, a great enough cause occurs. Yeah, Admiral Ken? Um, I think if you've listened to this show um, for, for more than five minutes over the last year and a half, you, you heard me as a Naval Academy graduate, as a combat veteran, as a flag, as a retired flag officer, as a, as a, as a voting Republican who also, who also happens to be black. Uh, I've been very critical 
of not 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 the the the, uh, the the one or two good things that have come out of the Trump presidency, but I've been very critical of of the behavior, of the lack of civility, of the lack of good leadership skills. I think what came out of it for me was that um, John McCain felt very comfortable calling people out for not doing the right thing. And if anything, the thing I took away from it, that it, it energized me to keep doing that. I think if anybody knows me, um, especially close family members and had any belief that I was going to get kind of quiet, just kind of start looking at normalizing the behavior out of this administration. I think, you know, they need to think again, because I, I, I got a battery recharge from listening and watching uh, the, uh, the, the send off that John McCain had got over the last few days. And Alan Moore. Well, my hope is that that uh, rather than feel like, gosh, we've turned a page, um, there will never be another John McCain. Woe is us. What do we do now? I'm I'm hoping it's 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 a reminder and the whole service and the tributes to him that public service is a noble calling and that we shouldn't give up. We have a strong, resilient country. And we will the, the the country and its values and its people will ultimately prevail. Very good, very good. Uh, obviously, you know the loss of Senator McCain has left a, a, a large void. It should be announced though today uh, that the governor of Arizona, Governor Ducey, did in fact appoint. Uh, former Arizona political machine uh, John Kyle to the position as temporary senator, or actually thus elevating him to senior senator of the great state of Arizona. Uh, Real quickly, Alan Moore, real briefly, uh, the appointment of Kyle to the Senate to replace Senator McCain is, is this a statement by Ducey? Because is, is, it doesn't seem like he's playing to the base with this. It's more along the lines of the McCain mentality, or is there some base dog whistling going on out of Phoenix? I, I think this is, this is uh, intended to be a placeholder. Um, Kyle served 18 years in the Senate. He retired six years ago. Um, uh, he's 76 years old. Uh, he he's basically done his service. Um, some someone obviously thought that having a guy come in at this crucial time with with the uh, with the Kavanaugh nomination live um, with with appropriations bills and 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 government shutdowns being, you know, at least talked about with the president under investigation, um, and and a lot of you know a lot of fear in the land um, that that Kyle is a is is a calming force. He's a known entity, and 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 they avoid this question of, wait, is he going to be running? Is he going to be here for the long term? Is the governor trying to tip the scales? Um, what I read, as I referenced earlier, was that Kyle has agreed to serve through the end of this year, and beyond that, we'll see. Um, 
So it, 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 it's entirely conceivable that this will be a very short-lived um, uh, time of service um, and that we will be back to another appointee um, early in the next year. Dan Lipner, do you see this as kind of a a soothing white noise, well, for lack of a better term, but the soothing sounds of rain and wind through the leaves politically for the residents of the state of Arizona, or is there a hidden message here? Neither. I think it was a pick by design to make no noise, to not get involved with any of the noise at the moment and not to damage the governor, who is also a political entity there, uh, in any way and stay out of the fray of any hits whatsoever. It was a neutral pick, and it was probably a good pick for that. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about some developing news. Uh, In case you haven't seen it, Bob Woodward's book, Fear, is scheduled to be released this week. Uh, Already huge sellers. But what we're going to talk about is one of the subjects brought out in the book is the feud going on between the Kennedy Building and the White House, Trump and Jeff Sessions, DOJ and the executive. We're going to talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Thank you. 
Room Politics. And we're back here for the second hour-ish of the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me, as they do every Tuesday, from New York City, Sharmila Achari, from the great District of Columbia National Capital Region, Dan Lipner Esquire, Admiral Ken Carradine from the Commonwealth of Virginia, and also in Northern Virginia, he is the man we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Let's talk about the developing story coming out of Washington, D.C. Uh, for those who haven't seen the, the news, uh, famed investigative journalist Bob Woodward of Watergate fame and the author of several very good books about just about every president since Nixon uh, is coming out with a new book regarding about the Trump administration called Fear. Apparently there are several big, uh, very big um, revelations to come out. Everything from, as, as NBC News is reporting, that the book talks about a quote-unquote nervous breakdown in the White House over the Trump presidency. Uh, there is a lot of others, but the one factor it does confirm is there is a very, very big disdain between the White House and the Attorney General and the Justice Department, that being the Attorney General being Jeff Sessions, and even new targets on uh, FBI Director Ray. Here's the issue, and, and I'm going to start with Sharmila Achari. Sharmila, we saw the tweets that the President came out with over the weekend, and regarding uh, Chris Collins, the congressman from New York, who's been indicted uh, and arrested on insider trading. Uh, we look at uh, the, the tweet also included a comment about uh, Duncan Hunter of California. He's been arrested and indicted on charges of campaign finance fraud. His comments directed directly at Jeff Sessions are we seeing a president that is literally trying to not just politicize, but to overtake his own Justice Department to make it an arm of his own White House rather than an arm of the federal government to serve the people? Justin, you're acting like you're surprised. <laughs> this has been the story for the last 17 months. The president has routinely you know, displayed a complete ambivalence, if not rejections of the norms of the rules of law, the norms of how the government bureaucracy functions, because he wants things to be done his way. He doesn't want opposition. He doesn't want meaningful um, pillars. He doesn't want meaningful institutions that are robust and uphold the law, no matter, you know, who it applies to. He wants a Roy, he's said repeatedly, he wants a Roy Cohen. He wants an enforcer. He wants someone who will just do his bidding and make what he wants happen. The president thought he had that in Jeff Sessions because Jeff Sessions was one of the first senators to sign on to his campaign. And then I think, you know, his transition team convinced him that Jeff Sessions would be the best person to actually fulfill his MAGA agenda when, you know, confirmed to attorney general, which actually is true. And so, you know, Jeff Sessions' original sin of 
not of, of recusing himself from the Russia investigation and then subsequently, you know, leading to the appointment of Robert Mueller has only been compounded in the president's eyes every time the Justice Department does something he doesn't agree with. Admiral, Admiral Ken, you know, there's always there's always going to be some tension uh, between a White House and their Justice Department, between a president and their attorney general. In, 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 in every administration, there's always been instances where they may not like each other right now, but there's always uh, a level of love and support here. We're not seeing this in this White House or this Justice Department to the extent where he's literally in one tweet put out uh, yesterday where he calls out Jeff Sessions saying two easy wins now in doubt because there's not enough time. Good job, Jeff. Should that give Americans concern that we're seeing a president that's literally trying to weaponize the not just his attorney general, but weaponize the Department of Justice as a whole for his own use? And, and you left out the, uh, the the important part of that tweet, and that was the fact that he attributed the uh, the indictments to two long-standing uh, Obama investigations, when both of those investigations began under his watch. So, in a word, yeah. Uh, it is probably lie number 4,115 because I, I mean, who can keep track? But, um, you know, the president never has clearly seemed to understand that the attorney general is not his general attorney. He works for the country. And um, the fact that Jeff Sessions recused himself, which was the right thing for him to do, um, and apparently there might be some more evidence that may look may make sessions look even more complicit than um, you know he originally thought that he himself was um, was the right thing to do and I think it, it just kind of galls him that not only uh, does Jeff Sessions but uh, Rob Rosenstein and now Christopher Ray are saying hey dude you know we don't work for you you appointed us but we work for the American people and I think it just frankly pisses him off. He's got to have some way of dealing with it uh, that's childlike versus an adult man. Yeah, uh, Alan Moore, we saw Jeff Sessions kind of fire an assault back via Twitter uh, against the president. The president put out a tweet saying that Jeff Sessions never had control of the Department of Justice. Jeff Sessions returned the volley on Twitter saying that, hey, this was a, uh, a situation where I had control of the Justice Department on day one. Is this, does this strength, does this fight strengthen Jeff Sessions' position as Attorney General, or does it weaken it? Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm laughing because there's this, this huge irony. Um, I can I think back about how Jeff Session was trashed uh, when he was first nominated. Uh, I don't remember that he got more than two or three uh, Democrat votes, um, and and he had the created a fair amount of hand wringing on the part of Republicans. But they thought, hey, we know the guy, we know who he is, we don't always agree with him, um, and, uh, and and we're comfortable with him. Um, 
And then, not long thereafter, when he became the subject of attack by the president, you saw the Republicans speaking much more uh, firmly in favor of Sessions than they did when he was uh, when he was nominated. Um, and then, when he became even more uh, uh, attacked, and, and increasing talk uh, uh, emerged of possibly replacing him in the last uh, month or two, you you see uh, Democrats saying, you know, how dare you? How dare you, Mr. President? It's like, how dare you talk about getting this guy that we never respected and we opposed? Um, there's just only in Washington, you know, there's only in Washington uh, uh, elements to all of this. My concern about the president here, and in this book, uh, and in some other some anecdotes that appear, is that it 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 fleshes out and gives more examples of a man who clearly has never had any particular interest in how our governmental system works, what the role of the White House and the executive branch and the Congress is, and for that matter, any kind of detail about any major domestic or foreign policy issues. We've had presidents before who came in with huge knowledge gaps, but they devoted a senior people to helping them learn and significant time trying to figure stuff out. What we hear in this book is more anecdotes of the president being in a meeting where he's supposedly getting briefed on pick a subject, domestic policy, health care, uh, uh, trade, uh, North Korea, Iran. And he listens for a few minutes and then he diverts and starts talking about totally unrelated issues um, he shows no foundation of knowledge and no intellectual curiosity. That is a horrendous, dangerous mix. Um, that's what we have, and what we're hearing about what was going on in the White House is when he would be on the verge of signing something that, uh, like simply negating um, a trade agreement with South Korea or NAFTA, um, the people around him would, would remove the papers. They, they would be ready for him to sign. It would be like, oh, we can't let him sign that. And then maybe he'll forget, or he'll then come back and say, hey, where is that? And they'll talk him into a, a, a third option. This is not the kind of thing that gives any of us any level of security or comfort. And it's tragic and sad um, that, that, that that's what we have, uh, that we have a system that could elect someone so ill-prepared and so disinterested in the content of the job nor of the enterprise that he leads. Dan Lipner, is is this a situation where – the, the inherent responsibility of the Attorney General and Director Ray, should they be pushing back in the open? And, you know, unfortunately, the, we serve at the pleasure of the President, but is there a responsibility for Jeff Sessions and Director Ray and Rod Rosenstein to push back openly against the politicalization of the DOJ? In any other context, I would say probably not. However, in the context of the Trump presidency and his explicit words in the, in the form of the tweet that somehow, and this is the joke I made coming in, that somehow because they are Republicans, 
Department of Justice should be hands-off for criminal behavior is horrific. And everyone should have pause that the President of the United States is suggesting that simply because somebody is from my own party, they get a pass for doing wrong. That's a big problem. Okay, interesting. Sharmila Chari, do you agree with Dan? I mean, is there a, I mean, is there a responsibility for them to push away from the politicalization of DOJ? Sorry, I had Charmilla? you on mute. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, I had you on mute. Uh, yes, I think there is a responsibility, but I, I do feel a little badly for uh, AG Sessions and Director Ray because they're caught in a really precarious position. On one hand, they are stewards and, by all means, you know, faith, by all accounts, faithful stewards of the institutions that they're leading, right? They both believe in the purpose of their institutions. They're supported by a lot of the rank and file, and, you know, they, they don't want their institution to lose its legitimacy. But on the other hand, they are supporters of President Trump and his agenda. So they have to walk a really delicate balancing or, or walk a very delicate tightrope between pushing back on President Trump's politicization of their institutions, but not actually criticizing him. And that's very hard for them to do, especially because they also realize that if they criticize him enough, if they push him far enough, he'll fire them and replace them with someone who may be more malleable to allowing their institutions to be politicized. And so for them, I think the reason that you've seen them largely stay silent is because they realize that the risk of speaking out, even though they need to defend their institutions, and I'm sure they're defending them largely internally to the employees who are losing morale left and right, but the reason they don't speak out publicly is because they fear what could happen if the president gets rid of them. But at, at, at some point, again, Admiral Ken, the term we serve at the pleasure of the president kicks in. It is the prerogative of the executive to have an attorney general that he believes best matches the agenda that he's pushing forward. Uh, a sure. lot of Okay, go ahead. Sure. And, and I think if you look at immigration policy, if you look at um, the, um, the, some of the actions that the attorney general has taken against uh, uh, gangs like MS-13, uh, he is actually doing that. Um, but if you also look at the fact that the president seems bound and determined to uh, get Jeff Sessions out of place so he'll get some other uh, attorney general to do his bidding, uh, I think that's where the line gets drawn. I think, um, I think Sessions, to the greatest extent possible, is going to try and follow the law. And if the president wants to get, uh, if, if 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 the president wants him to leave, I'm sure Sessions has done the calculus. You're going to have to fire me. And and in doing so, I think the president is absolutely. And and, and I'm not a lawyer, nor and I've only ever played one in uh, in the play Inherit the Wind when I was in high school. But just based on everything that, based on everything that Sharmila and Dan has has taught me, uh, have taught me. That if, if he does that because he's trying to get him to you know to call off the Mueller investigation, that's clear obstruction of justice. And oh by the way, even if he even if he got rid of Sessions, I don't think that he can get another Attorney General uh, confirmed anytime soon. And can I, Alan, Alan, do you agree? I hear your voice, hear you. I think William Jennings Bryan. 
<laughs> Alan Moore, do you agree with Admiral Ken's assessment? Well, so so a year ago, um, when when everybody was rallying, uh, most Republicans were rallying to Jeff Sessions' side and some Democrats. Um, uh, a year has passed, a year and a half, uh, and and the the ugliness has become more vicious, more public, more visible. Um, I'm something of a traditionalist in terms of how presidents and cabinets should work. And when you have a relationship between a president and a, mem- and, a, and, a, and a senior member of his administration, be it a senior White House person and a bunch of them have gone, or uh, a cabinet member, and we, we did see Rex Tillerson go, you've got now a highly toxic embarrassing relationship between the president and Jeff Sessions. I do not blame Jeff Sessions for that. I blame the president 100% for that. I think it's disgusting and beneath what any, what, what I want a president to be. Having said that, that relationship is so toxic that I think that after the elections, it's time for, uh, for sessions to go, who replaces him? God only knows, because whoever is in charge of the Senate, whether it's the Republicans by a vote or two, the Democrats by a vote or two, or a tie, and it's going to be somewhere in there, I think. Um, I don't know. I don't. I, the, the president is so angry about sessions that he's obviously blind to the question. Who replaces him, and is that somebody that you, Mr. President, are going to like better than Jeff Sessions? Now, apparently, in private, he has – well, in public, he said, I only gave him the job because he was out of loyalty. And then in the, in, the new, uh, uh, in the new Woodward book, apparently, he, 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 he trashes um, uh, uh, Sessions further by calling him a dumb Southerner. Well, that's going to go over well um, with uh, uh, with with his base. Um, it, it, it's you know he'll deny saying it, of course, but he, he, he this relationship they have is not good for the country. Um, having said that, there's this part of me that that says, fine, get rid of Sessions down after the elections are out of here. And then, if Sessions hasn't quit before then, and then, good luck, good luck finding a an American um, male, female, you, what, whatever background in the legal profession, who can get confirmed um, in in a in, in the toxic environment that this president has created around that particular job it's going to be a giant challenge and a giant mess but sessions needs to go i think not only would there be an issue with getting someone con, uh, confirmed i uh, i think there would be that would be just a huge problem finding anybody who would take that job agreed agreed well, but 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 there were there will be takers except dan you'll work for anybody <laughs> and, 
<laughs> well, again, you I also Rudy Giuliani won't be appointed. No. He won't be confirmed. He can't be confirmed. And on top of the fact, why would why would Donald Trump put up Rudy Giuliani, who's basically his his external mouthpiece for his legal side? He's too valuable on as outside counsel than he would be as attorney general. <laughs> and and, and according to Woodward, uh, yeah. Go ahead, Sharma. Go ahead. Oh, thanks, Go ahead. Ken. I think we're going to say the same thing. According to yep, Woodward, yep. Trump doesn't respect Giuliani that much either. <laughs> He's not a man. He's not a man. Yeah, he wears diapers. Oh, God. Wow. Uh, you know what? We've blown through this segment and uh, the break. We might as well keep going. Uh, I do want to talk about real quickly because it's a broader topic, and it's a topic we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks as we lead up to the midterms in November. But I do want to talk about last week's interesting political races that we saw uh, in the primaries in Arizona and in Florida, namely the one in Florida that got my attention, which leads me to believe we're seeing a almost a trend in the primaries right now, base versus base. In Florida, the... Trump-backed, basically had Trump tattooed on every part of his family's bodies, Ron DeSantis, the Republican, (laughs) against relative unknown and mayor of Tallahassee and very progressive Democrat, uh, Robert Gillum. The two of them have won their party's nomination for the governor's mansion in Tallahassee, Florida. The trick is they're so hardline based, DeSantis to the right, Gillum progressive to the left, that this leaves a huge void in the moderate and independent crowd. So I, I, I gotta, I gotta look at this. And Oh, by the way, the one thing we're not looking at is the, the, the one factor that we'll talk about also real quick but let's just talk about the independent and moderate crowd for a second. Dan Lipner, when you see Gillum and DeSantis win in Florida, which arguably could be a purplish kind of state, uh, or at least it's purple north of Orange County, Orlando, is is there... Are the parties missing the point as far as trying to find people who are, in fact, electable by a majority of the general population? Well, a couple of things. First, Orlando, the, the I-4 corridor, which goes from Daytona, Orlando, and Tampa, is the purple part of Florida and where Florida becomes a swing state. And in spite of Democrats' best efforts, uh, and I mean best efforts in air quotes, uh, Democrats haven't won the governorship in the state of Florida in more than 20 years. That said, the the gov- gubernatorial candidate of Gillum, he won in the plurality. He got 34% of the vote in part because Democrat, the other Democratic candidates, Gwen Graham and, and Phil Levine, split the vote and attacked each other. It's, it's textbook 
politics to try and stay out of the line of fire while two of your opponents beat each other up. So kudos to him for running a good campaign strategy to get the nom- nomination. There's no macro takeaway from that other than other folks that weren't paying attention. This is not that different from how uh, Jesse Ventura became governor of Minnesota. When other candidates don't take somebody seriously, that person can occasionally sneak in and win. As far as the Republican nominee, yeah, he's been blessed by the president and the ugly statements that have come from him and his campaign since then prove to be that which the president is, a bigot and a racist. Admiral Ken, you're down there in Florida. You were there for yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to monkey up this show. I really don't. Wow. Oh, low blow. Wow. <laughs> wow. The man, that's the, wow. That's Wait a minute. I want to unrecord. I want that. Well, okay. said. well said, well said, my friend. I want wait, 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 wait. I, I want to on record. <laughs> wait, wait a minute, Admiral Ken. Before we get, I don't believe you said that out of all the time, and I'll tell you why. I'm gonna. I'm just quoting DeSantis, man. That's all I'm doing. That's right. By the way, I, before we get hate mail from everybody, uh, Admiral Ken, what color is your skin <laughs> today? Admiral Ken. Today? I'm going to beat you. I swear to God I'm going to come after you. I really am. I am. I am. I am. Again, for the second time in the show, I am. I am. I am. I am a, I am a uh, disgruntled uh, black Republican. Okay? Okay. Thank you for pointing I'm that not out. Disgruntled, I'm, but I'm not disgruntled about being black. Okay? I, no, I got that. We got, we, got, we got that. We got that. Uh, Admiral Ken, let's get back to the show. Admiral Ken... When, when you see when you see the dichotomy between DeSantis and Gillum, that's a big big gap between the two of them. Uh, are is the Republican Party of Florida and the Democrat and the Florida Democratic Party are they in fact losing the forest through the trees? Yeah, I, I don't. I, I you know what I, I well here's the deal. I, I I'm I I've only been in Florida for a short period of time. And, and as I've alluded to in previous previous shows, I am probably in one of the, the, the reddest parts of the state. Uh, not so much because of social stuff, but it's all about the money with, 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 with these people. So, but I, I think the best way of saying it is that I, you know, the the, the Democratic Party, uh, um, at least the portion of it that that uh, that Mayor Gillum uh, is representing, is extremely extremely far to the left. DeSantis is pretty far to the right. To your point, there's a huge swath of folks in the middle going, okay, I don't like either one of these guys. I mean, I don't trust either one of these guys. I mean, I think, I think it, you know, it's safe to say that the state of Florida uh, is going to get handed a Sophie's Choice when it comes to picking a governor, just like we got uh, handed one uh, for picking president 18, 18, 24 months ago. So the real question is, you know whether the president's issues um, are going to uh, cause DeSantis to, you know, to to come back toward the center, or whether the the Democratic Party is going to realize that you know they've got to do something to get to get 
uh, uh, Gillum, Mayor Gillum, to, to, to swing a little bit more toward the center in order to, to get more get more votes. But left to their own devices, it's going to be deep red 20, 30 percent uh, Republicans fighting against deep blue 20 to 30 percent Democrats. And everybody else is going to be in the middle going, OK, this is going to suck for four years. You know, we're looking right now at I'm looking at a Quinnipiac poll that came out. You look at uh, who's leading that between that race between Gillum and DeSantis. Gillum's 50 percent, DeSantis at 47 percent, definitely within the the margin of error. But should that scare Republicans, Dan Lipner? Yes, it should scare Republicans. Um, in part because they have an impossible, they have an impossible defense, and DeSantis has again wrapped his arms around the president, which is sort of inexplicable for the general election. Tr- well, Trump is going to be on the ballot, though not in name. It's an oppor- as soon as he had the nomination, he should have been running away from him, but he's not. So I, it's his strategy as Republican is baffling me right now post-nomination. Pre-nomination, I understood since the Republican Party has become the Trump Party. Post-nomination, if he wants to win, he needs more than that. So, so I, I totally I, agree with Dan. I, okay. I, and, I, I, and I think, sorry. sorry to interrupt, but I, I totally agree with Dan that, you know, I think DeSantis has boxed himself in by, you know, being such a Trump acolyte and really, you know, just embracing every position the president has and, embracing literally embracing the man you know as a as a whole his both his persona and his policies and i think that gillum being a relative unknown has a lot more flexibility to craft his message both for progressives and to make a compelling case for the progressive agenda to more moderate voters i think you uh, saw something similar with you know well, progressive candidates throughout the country in the last you know two election cycles but you know, again, being a relative unknown, Gillum has a lot more freedom to tailor his message and, you know, tailor his messaging to a larger majority of the voters. He's not as kind of boxed in as the Democrats is currently. I think we're having I think we're having a deja vu moment. This feels a lot like the conversations that we were having prior to the presidential election uh, two years ago, almost two years ago. And the reason I say that is because the one piece of data that we're all using, most of us are using, to, to predict how this is going to fall out, it, are the polls. I, I think if anything, I think if anything, the last election basically has, has, has caused me to, in, to inject a severe level of doubt into any polling that, 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 that comes up, especially when it talks about um, uh, large, large races where they have to use uh, the telephone uh, or, or, or people knocking on doors uh, to, to, to get their results. Now, granted, I don't know what the, what the, uh, what the, what the new uh, or the best approach is going to be. I personally don't trust the polls anymore, and, I'm got, and, and trust me, I'm really hoping that both of you are right, and I'm hoping that there's going to be something that's going to cause the Republican Party to wake up and smell the coffee. But I just but don't trust the polls. Is, but here's, here's uh, can the I say something? Yeah, go ahead, Alan. Yeah, so there's a couple of things we have not talked about here. Uh, you know, this this sort of Trump versus Bernie Sanders um, uh, surrogates election that's that's shaping up in Florida. Um, Gillum, we don't know much about, but whenever he starts talking about national issues like Medicare for all, 
he clearly, with follow-up questions, doesn't know what he's talking about, doesn't have an idea uh, of because there's not that many people do. There's so many possible definitions to what Medicare for all means. But in a in a state where older people who rely on Medicare um, uh, have this view, don't mess with my Medicare. Um, it, it, there's a big opportunity to to trash him and what will be called his ignorance of you know this guy Gillum is going to mess up your Medicare. Pay attention to that. He also is. He's got more links than he would like to have to an FBI investigation of corruption in the Tallahassee area, where a couple of people he's known well, has traveled with, has apparently received some gifts from, um, are are under investigation. You're going to know a lot more about that before we're done. Remember, what's at stake in Florida is not just the state house, but We've got a competitive Senate race down there between the 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 Governor Scott and and Senator Bill Nelson, who is vulnerable. So the 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 folks who care about the control of the Senate um, are looking at the governor's race and vice versa because turnout could affect turnout relating to the governor's race, for example, could could impact the outcome of the Senate race. I'm not smart enough to tell you <laughs> who the likely winner is, who the likely losers are, but 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 Florida, because of the two elections, is very high stakes this time around, and it's going to be as ugly as you can imagine. Speaking of ugly, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel today said he's not going to seek just- re-election. We we I was just gonna just gonna bring that up at the end of the show, but thanks for stealing my thunder, Alan. Actually, uh, anytime. Can I just can I, can I bring this circle to a different hold on, campaign? Hold on, hold on, in, in, hold 19, on, in 1991, David Duke ran for governor, and you had the slogan in opposition to David Duke, "Vote for the crook." It's important, and David Duke would <laughs> not be the crook in this scenario. <laughs> So, so wait. Let's be clear about one thing, because uh, I, I have familiarity with what's going on down in Tallahassee. Let's be clear. Uh, Mayor Gillum has not been implicated or has been identified as a source of the investigation. The greater investigation is corruption inside city government, of which he is the mayor. Let's just be clear about that. Um, <laughs> No, 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 well I mean, said. there is a differential. Well, there, I mean, well no, no, said. there is. What's that? Well said. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I mean, that's that. I, I want to be fair. I want to be fair in this because uh, we do try and be fair. Um, but the reality still dictates is, uh, and 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 Sharma, I'll I'll go to you. Is that there's there's a, a big there's a big problem with these Bernie Sanders followers. We're seeing it with Gillum. We're seeing it with uh, uh, Orazio Cortez up in New York, whereas they're being catapulted into the national spotlight. But it seems like when you start getting and digging, there's not a whole lot of there there. Is Bernie Sanders magical pixie dust enough to get even moderates to vote for 
these very left progressives? Look, I don't think it's I think it's somewhat condescending to say Bernie Sanders magical pixie dust. I think a big part of the reason that Democratic primary voters voted for these candidates like Ocasio-Cortez and Terry Gill or and um Andrew Gillum is because they're not career politicians, right? Because they're new figures, because they're anti, you know, quote unquote anti-establishment, they represent a break from traditional politics and that's what voters that's how they have positioned themselves and that's how, what voters want. But I mean, like, yes. Using, no, 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 can I finish my sentence, argument. please? You're using the same argument that everybody on the right was saying about Trump. Right, which and is look I think but which which proved out to be valid. I'm not saying that they are I'm not saying that they're the best qualified candidates. I am saying the exact same reasons that voters gravitated towards President Trump, because he was an outsider, because he wasn't a traditional politician, is the exact same reason that they're gravitating to these politicians on the left, right? Whether or not that means that voters haven't learned their lesson, that, you know, a, that a legislator with more years of experience is going to be a more effective, you know, elected representative, perhaps that hasn't sunk in yet, because this crop of Democratic candidates hasn't actually been elected. And so I think that, again, because the president is so toxically unpopular right now, between an inexperienced Democratic candidate and a kind of Trump card-carrying MAGA candidate on the right, voters are still right now going to gravitate to the left-leaning candidate because they don't approve of the president and they don't approve of his policies. And so they're going to go for a candidate who represents the opposite of that, even if that candidate is less experienced than the candidate on the right. I think that right now we are in sort of a post-experience reality. You know, Donald Trump shattered. If You know, I've, I've had friends on the right say that, you know, this started with President Obama, who was, you know, the least experienced of all the candidates in that in the 2016 election, both in the primary and the general election. And then it got, you know, the need for experience with the American electorate became completely shattered with President Trump. So I think that there is a legitimate argument that we may be living in a post-experience, post-qualifications era, and it's going to have to write itself out once these candidates get elected. But Dan Lipner, you know, I, one of the races that's uh, kind of everybody's got their eye on today is that that race in the Massachusetts Seventh, where you've got a relative newcomer going up going up against the multi-term establishment candidate. Who, if you talk to any Democrats in that primary, they love the incumbent. Are are is there a possibility that we're seeing? In some instances, the Democrats eat their own? I mean, we've already seen Democrats eat their own, and that said, it's what Democrats do. So it's not so much news on the Democratic side of things. When Republicans eat their own, then it's news. Uh, that, okay, thanks. Thanks for that. Okay, that works. <laughs> Look, you see, in, you see in Massachusetts that the establishment is somewhat divided. The Boston Globe just endorsed Ayanna Presley. Uh, right, but but again, you're talking about you're also talking about a political machine up there that arguably even the even the people that support Ayanna Presley say, wait a minute, we 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 love we love our representative too. It, it, it's a bizarre situation. I don't get it. I don't get it. Hey, uh, by the way, uh, I, since Alan Moore pointed it out, uh, in case you didn't hear, 
Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel has decided not to run for a third term, which would have been a la Delhi-esque. But uh, now questions surrounding what his next move is. Dan Lipner, what's what's Rahm's next move? He doesn't just not a be fan here in Chicago England. because he feels like it. Yeah, I'm certain he's got a his eye on either a governor's race or a Senate race sometime in the future. That said, I'm not a ROM fan, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Admiral Ken, is is this a sign that we may see him come out in 2020 for the big job? Well, uh, I I I don't I don't I, like like Dan. I'm not a ROM fan, but uh, I think that uh, with uh, his rel- his perceived inability to solve the crime problem in Chicago. I'm not entirely sure what he would be able to run on. Wow. Okay. Well, with that being said, we've got, uh, we, we've got seven minutes left in the show. Uh, real quickly around the horn. What did we miss? 30 seconds or less. Sharma Chari, what do we miss this week? Uh, I think it's a story from last week, but I don't think we talked about the explosive report in the Washington Post about the Trump administration denying passport renewals and challenging the citizenship of uh, Hispanic Americans who were born in um, on in border towns in Texas. Ah, something we do need to keep an eye on that one. Alan Moore, what did we miss? The Pope. We haven't talked about the absolute uh, horrendous revived. Um, uh, debate uh, and turmoil inside the Catholic Church. Um, we have this extraordinary uh, issue of the Pope himself now being accused by a, a high-level former uh, official of the Church for knowing uh, about the sins of a cardinal and using that cardinal anyway, Cardinal McCarrick from the U.S. It's it's a big deal in the Catholic world, and it and it 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 could. It could affect the international support of Pope Francis, much deserved, I would say, but but there's a potential taint, and the church has clammed up about it. Right. Uh, Admiral Ken, what did we miss? Um, we uh, had another great American uh, have a great send-off over the weekend in the, in the manner of Aretha Franklin. Uh, we didn't talk about that, um, and uh, I think uh, we're talking about how – how much less the planet is going to be with her absence uh, probably would uh, done, done us some good. And uh, Dan Lipner, what do we miss? Well, I'll take care of business and just say the uh, one last thing that we left off was the new NAFTA, NAFTA? Question mark between the United States, Mexico, and Canada. You mean, you mean Usamex? <laughs> Alan Moore, actually, I do want to. Alan Moore, thirty seconds or less. Is 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 Canada got the upper hand, or is Trump know what he's doing? Uh, no, and no. Is it is it that big of a disaster? It, it's. It, it, it's way the, the the agreement with Mexico, the tentative agreement, details to follow, is way less than sort of meets the eye. It's not nothing, but it's you know you you can't go from the the worst trade deal ever in the history of a man and now say one of the best trade deals ever. There's just not enough meat to it. And Canada may may or may not be in. Um, and uh, 
we'll see. Canada's, you know, in a bit of a box because uh, they desperately need ready and full access to the U.S. market, and they don't want to look like chumps. So stay tuned. Ah, okay, very good. Very good. Well, with that, uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to thank everybody on behalf of Sharmal Achari in New York, Dan Lipner here in Washington, D.C., Admiral Ken Carradine in the Commonwealth of Virginia, as is the Honorable Alan Moore. I'm your host, moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week Wait, on Blog Talk Trump Radio. Win the parachute pool. Wait, excuse me? Somebody's, somebody go on mute. Win the pool. What? Dan Lipner. Sharmala should win the parachute pool. She's the only person who's been consistently picking the White House Council as being the next departure. Oh, Why, thank you. Sorry, did we forget that? I'm sorry. Well, she stopped yeah. picking him, and he hasn't, and he hasn't left yet. He hasn't left yet. He's not leaving till fall. Somebody else could leave before then. She's not but winning. The announcement is what matters. He's a lame duck no, now. No, no, no. It's the actual walking they're out all, the door. Believe me, they're all lame ducks now. Yeah. Also, it seemed unladylike to say "I told you so" about Andrew Gillum's victory. Oh, so, all right, fine. Uh, I'll just fine. sit here feeling, feeling smug. It's so not attractive on you, madam. <laughs> anyway, that being said, on behalf of everybody, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, however, stand by for big news coming out of. Uh, coming out of Washington, D.C. about our show. Uh, big date, October 2nd. That being said, uh, <laughs> you can follow us on our website, www.backroompolitics.org. You can also check us out on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash backroompoliticsradio. Also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com at backroompolitics. You can email me, justin at backroompolitics.org with all your fan mail, hate mail, and whatever you want to say. Hey, uh, next week also coming back, Audrey Howerton. Audrey, we need you back, ma'am. That being said, have a great week, America. We'll see you. Hey, crew, can you stay online? Because I got to talk to y'all. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye. Backroom Politics. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.